0: This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Pray with me, Father, we come to your altar and we are so glad that your arms are open wide, that you're not shaking your fist at us, you're not throwing lightning bolts at us today, Lord, but your arms are open wide, as wide as Jesus' arms on the cross Your arms are open wide to us. So, Father, for for those of us who have sinned this week, and that's all of us, for those who, like Adam and Eve, want to run away from you and hide, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to turn around and run back to your open arms, that you would welcome us home, Father as the father in the parable welcomed the prodigal home, Lord, you welcome us. And we have our well-rehearsed speeches, Lord. We don't deserve to be your children. We'd be happy just to be your servants, Lord. But you get the robe and the ring and the shoes and you come running to welcome us. So, yes, Lord, we welcome you with praise on this Palm Sunday. Like little children with palm branches, Lord, we just want the whole world to know that you are the king and there is no other. Glorious, majestic, mighty, magnificent, unparalleled, unrivaled ruler of the universe, we welcome you with praise. And we thank you for welcoming us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Carl Barth, years ago, said Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in the human life. Do you believe that? It depends, I suppose, on how you define worship. But it seems to me that if worship is, as Paul says, offering to God our whole lives as a living sacrifice, getting in the plate, as it were, and saying, God, all of me I give to you, then nothing could be more momentous. Nothing could be more urgent. Nothing could be more glorious. And that's why I think those people, when Jesus stood at the top of that hill just coming out of Bethany, and He's, he's just been anointed with powerful perfume, uh, an act of lavish love by Mary who's so grateful that her brother is alive, Lazarus' sister has just worshipped Jesus by pouring perfume on his feet and wiping it with her hair. And it says the fragrance filled the house. So she's worshipping. And then those who had come up to worship at the feast, the ones who had seen Lazarus come out of the tomb, they're there. There are even some Greeks who've come from far away. Greeks were always wandering, always seeking truth. And they have come to believe that perhaps Jesus is who He says He is. So they're there, and they're coming up to this feast. And Jesus is about to come down this hill. And people just start they just start pulling off their jackets and throwing them on the road. And then somebody gets a sharp object and begins to cut down branches of trees and they begin to wave them. Because a hundred years before, when Judas Maccabeus had come into the city to become the political ruler and overthrew all of Israel's enemies they had welcomed him with palm branches but the back story is Psalm 118 which says this is the day the Lord has made and these are the very verses they were speaking this is what they're reenacting The worshipers knew, Jesus knew, the disciples it turns out, verse 17, they didn't understand. But the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The old translations say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice today and be glad. The Lord has done it this very day. And the Lord save us, that's Hosanna. That's what the children were shouting. This is straight out of Psalm 118. Lord, grant us Success! they shouted out, "Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made His light shine on us with boughs in hand. What do you bring with you today? With boughs, branches in hand, we join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. And when they welcome Jesus in that way, and Matthew tells us the Pharisees said, make it stop, Jesus, make it stop. Anytime anybody ever wants to worship, there'll be somebody standing on the sidelines saying, make it stop. But they came worshiping Him. And so do we. Would you open your Bibles with me today to the Gospel of John? We've been camping out in John. I confess it's, you know, can you have a favorite gospel? I love them all for different reasons, but I've been loving John my whole life since I was reading from Good News for Modern Man with uh, little stick figures when I was a kid. Let's stand together, hear the word of the Lord together today. John, you know, I'm going to pick up in verse 17, John 12, verse 17. In fact, I'm going to pick up in Verse 16. I'm just changing the script here, but stay with me because these are important verses. If you got your Bibles open, the screen will pick up at about verse 19. At first, Jesus' disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, just underline that word, did they realize that these things had been written about Him and that these things had been done... To him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. That's a Greek-speaking, Greek culture city part of the Decapolis that surrounded the Sea of Galilee with a request, they said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, the other disciple. Only two of them had Greek names. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's that word again. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many Seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify, there's that word again, your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. And others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's time. It's time Je- Jesus has been saying this whole gospel. If you've been tracking, reading through the gospel of John, he always says, it's not time yet. So when his mom says to him, they run out of wine at the wedding in Cana, remember? And Jesus is there and she says, they run out of wine, they expect him to do something. He says, my time has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30. Again, in chapter 8, verse 20. They want to seize Jesus, but his hour, his time has not yet come. Why not? Well, because Jesus still had amazing miracles to do to heal a lame man in chapter 5, to feed a multitude in chapter 6, to walk on water, to stand up at the day of the great feast in chapter 7 and say, If anyone is thirsty, come and drink. In chapter 8, to defy the Pharisees and to remind them that he's the light of the world. In chapter 9, to heal a blind man. In chapter 10, to say, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In chapter 11, to say, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walked out of the grave and when he did, then they throw a party for Jesus and Jesus... Uh, recognizes that this is the hour. The hour is drawing near. But it isn't until Andrew and Philip walk up and say, so there are these Greek guys and they want to see you that Jesus says, it's time. It's time for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. And that word will be used again And again, we're standing on the bridge. Chapter 12 is the bridge between all the miracles that Jesus has done and the greatest miracle of all, the crucifixion and the resurrection which is still to come. And we're all, if you're with me this morning, we're all standing on that bridge and we're looking back at what Jesus has done, but we're looking forward and only when Jesus gets to this point can He say, it's time for me to be glorified. And when is God glorified? When is Christ glorified? You know, John Piper says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Is that us today? Are we satisfied in Him? And what He teaches us is that we were made to glorify God. The shorter Westminster Catechism says the chief purpose of people, I'm putting it in our vernacular, the main reason we're here is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So how do we do it? Well, it turns out it's not enough just to see God's glory. Jesus would say to Martha when she said, Don't open the tomb Because there's going to be an odor. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And now the Greeks come up and say, we want to see. And Jesus, by his answer, says nothing specifically to the Greeks. In fact, this scene ends in verse 36 with him going into hiding. But what he says is, for me to reach the whole world, I'll have to be lifted up on a cross And it turns out that glorification, the road to glorification, goes right through the juncture that we call crucifixion. Jesus has to be crucified to be glorified. And he says to his disciples, You want to come? You want to come when I'm glorified? You want to be there? Because wherever I am, that's where my servant's going to be. And a seed, if you just hold it in your hand, but if if it falls to the ground and dies, then it produces many seeds. And Jesus says, I've got to die to be glorified. How do we glorify God we glorify God in worship we use those very words to describe our worship we we glorify God we make much of God I was thinking this week as I listened to one of my favorite preachers talk about this and he reminded me that the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for glory are so very different the Hebrew word kavod is the word of weight glory is weight the weight of glory C.S. Lewis preached and wrote the weight of glory There's a weightiness. Our word that's like that is the word matter. So we say something has matter. It has substance. It has weight, right? And then what will we say about something that's important? That really matters. That's the word, glory, kavod, weight. It is to ascribe supreme importance to something. The Greek word is different. It's the word doksa, which the Christians kind of, as they often did, sort of made their own word. Our word doxology comes from that. Our handbells played the doxology last hour. Um, Doxa means brilliance, luminescence, effulgence. And Jesus keeps saying, I am the light of the world. And when is his light seen most clearly? When there was an eclipse of the sun. Jesus Christ was dying on a cross and He was being glorified by being lifted up. He was drawing not just that little gathering of Greeks, but all people, including you and me, to Himself. And we worship God by giving Him glory. So how do we give God glory? We say He's of supreme importance. We recognize that He is more beautiful More glorious than anybody or anything in this world. Is that who Jesus is to us? I'm not talking about going to, to church for one hour a week. I'm talking about saying Jesus Christ is the most important one in my life, He is the most beautiful one. I think that's why Mary poured the perfume. Because in that moment, after saving that perfume, that pint of pure nard for a lifetime, family heirloom possession, she said, There's never going to be a bigger moment than right now. That's what this is for. I'm going to give my very best to the one who raised my brother back to life again because he's more important and more beautiful to me than anyone or anything else in the world. That's worship. But here's Judas standing there saying, Wow, what a waste. Are you kidding me? That was worth a lot of money. We could have given that money to the poor. And Jesus said, yeah, you always got the poor. Poor are always there, but I'm here. And what she did will be remembered. It was an act of lavish love. It was an act of transcendent beauty. I think I heard it this week. I was at Jeff Lerner's funeral this week. Some of you were there. I was there. I was sitting right, right about in here. And right at the beginning, after I did sort of the the welcome to the funeral service, a group of instrumentalists were right about in here, string players, and they started playing adagio for strings. And I had never heard anything that beautiful in all my life. I wrote on my worship guide, breathtaking. Breathtaking. Because it was such a magnificent offering Samuel Barber wrote that and it just shows um you know the moment when a person dies and then the resolution into the presence of God and I was just like sitting right there in surround sound you know and I just I've listened to it every day this week I've told everybody I know about it. I'm like an evangelist for Adagio for Strings because the music is so incredibly beautiful. I wish everybody could hear that music because it was such a gift. It was such an offering, just like our worship to God today is an offering. And I think that's what the people who came waving the palm branches were about. They're, they're quoting Psalm 118, right? This is the day the Lord has made. What day? The day of your glorification. This is when it starts. This is it, Jesus. This is the day when we say, the world says, you're more important than anything else. You're more beautiful than anybody else. And Jesus is receiving that worship as He comes into the city. We glorify God by worshiping Him with abandon. We get caught in adoration like David dancing before the Lord with all his might. I am the worst dancer in my family and it's not even close. But I was aware when I thought about David dancing before the Lord that he didn't really care whether anybody thought he could dance well because he wasn't doing it for them but for God. I read a psalm every day. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about psalms. He says, one of the things that the psalms do for me is they they remind me of that abandonment with which David worshiped the Lord, that pure delight, not dutiful church going, but something robust and virile and spontaneous, something we may regard with an innocent envy and may hope to be infected by as we read. Ian Pitt Watson, who writes about preaching, said that when he was about 14 years old, he bought a book called How to Dance. And tried to teach himself to dance. And he memorized all the different diagrams. And he learned where to put his feet. And he, he you know, danced in front of the mirror. He said something was missing. Something was clearly missing. Then he went to a dance. And a girl asked him to dance. And he said it was awkward and cumbersome at first. Because she was very graceful. But then as they danced, some of her grace was transferred to him. And the things that he had memorized and learned began to make sense. The things he had practiced began to work. I think this is what worship is. It's God's grace being trained. We're clumsy, we're awkward, we're amateurs at this, but once we say to God, I'm willing to enter the dance, dance, dance wherever you may be. I am the Lord of the dance, says he. And one of my favorite moments in worship ever was in Atlanta at a Promise Keepers gathering like 20 years ago, and I was there, and my good friend Larry Bertram was there, but we didn't even know each other yet, but we were both there over in Atlanta, and there was this guy down by the platform, and when they began to sing, he was sitting in a wheelchair. I don't know why he was in a wheelchair, but he just started spinning that wheelchair around and around, and the look of absolute delight in his eyes said to me, he could not be more all-in in worship than he is right now. And I found myself saying, Lord, I want to love you like that. There are a lot of people who sing better than I do. Believe me when I say that. But I doubt anybody in the world loves to sing more than I do because I have a reason to sing. I sing on the bayou. I sing in the house. I annoy my family. I sing in the car. I sing everywhere I go. Melanie's mother, after she'd known me for a couple weeks, said, does he sing all the time? Does he sing all the time? Yeah, but but I have a reason to sing. And nobody loves to sing more than I do, but I just want to, just a teachable moment here. Are you with me? Don't, don't, look, singing is worship, but worship is not coterminous with singing. In other words, worship is not just singing. Worship is, is giving God your very best, like Mary pouring out the perfume. Worship is singing from your heart. Worship is, as Jack Hayford, I love his preaching. I look more like him than I ever wanted to these days. And Jack Hayford, who says that he was, he was smiling at somebody who was dancing before the Lord in his church, and that night he went back to his room, and the Lord said to him, would you dance for me? No, Lord, I'm not a dancer. Guilty feet, no rhythm, I got no gift, I don't know. And the Lord said, would you is there anything you wouldn't do for me? And Jack Hayford said, I, I said to the Lord, I, I will worship You. We glorify God. We make much of God. By worshiping in song, in listening. When we take the Lord's Supper this Thursday night, that is worship. It's giving God his worth, it's giving him thanks, it's recognizing that he's of supreme importance and beauty. We glorify God also when we walk with him all the way to the cross. So now the Greeks show up and the Pharisees, they're in despair. They're saying, Look, the whole world has gone after him. Verse 19. Of John 12 verse 20 and there were some Greeks just to prove the point the whole world yeah and the Greeks were there these are Gentiles notice about them I've been critical of them in the past I just read it again this week so no they're they're there to worship at the feast they they came up to worship They're probably proselytes to the Jewish religion. They've come to believe that Judaism is correct. And then there's this guy named Jesus, and they've heard that he raised a man to life again, and they want to see him. They just say, you know, we just want to see Jesus. But Jesus does not make this a photo op because he didn't save the world by signing autographs. So he says, it's time. I'll be glorified now. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm the seed, Jesus said, and I'm going to die, and you are going to be seeds, and you also are going to die. If you love your life, you'll lose it. If you give your life away, you will really find what life is about. And wherever I am, that's where my servant's going to be and I'm going to be on the cross. Where are you going to be? And it's an invitation to them to walk with Him to the cross. But only John of the 12 accepts the invitation to walk all the way to the cross with Jesus. And here's the thing. This is Palm Sunday, but it, It's also Passion Sunday. We're moving. Jesus was not moving into the Jerusalem Hilton. He's headed to a cross. He's coming down one hill into the city, but on Friday he's going to go up another hill called Golgotha and say, I love you this much to the whole world. And that's the journey that Jesus is on. And we're reenacting that journey with Him this week with Maundy Thursday and Savior, that beautiful oratorio on Friday and then the main event next Sunday. What we're saying is Jesus had to die to be glorified. And if you're you're with me, then we also have to die to self in order to be obedient to him. I was thinking about A.W. Tozer, who said there are three characteristics of people who've been crucified. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. There are three characteristics. One is, they're facing one direction. Notice that about people who are crucified. They can't turn back, and they no longer have any plans of their own. Is that you? Is that me? Brene Brown, uh, who has come back to the Lord, this brilliant sociologist Houstonian has come back to the Lord and, and she said about, about Christianity that we little understand that there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen in all these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy. She says there's just not enough blood on the floor and, and to, to make sense of that. And all of a sudden it becomes clear why Christians take forgiveness to heart because the blood on the floor is Christ's own blood. And if nothing else gets our attention, that should get our attention. That's how we're forgiven. And that's how we forgive others. Because we've been forgiven, we're kind and compassionate. Paul tells the Ephesians, we're kind and compassionate. And we forgive how? The same way God in Jesus Christ has forgiven us. It's uh, again C.S. Lewis talking about this, this walking with Christ all the way to the cross and and C.S. Lewis helps us by saying it costs God nothing so far as we know to create nice things. This beautiful day, this beautiful week of weather, that didn't cost God anything. But to convert rebellious wills like mine cost Him crucifixion. What does it cost to convert a rebellious will? Somebody who's in rebellion against God. Dorothy Sayers says we get, we get totally freaked out when a cat kills a sparrow, but we can come to church Sunday after Sunday and hear about God being murdered and be unmoved by it. You see the disconnect there? It's a non sequitur, isn't it? Sunday after Sunday, we experience no shock at all in the crucifixion of Jesus. And just to be clear, the first thing I read this morning when I looked on my scroll on my screen was about our brothers and sisters, Coptic Christians in The country of Egypt, who were killed while they were worshiping on Palm Sunday. It turns out, wherever people want to give their all to God, there's somebody back in the background saying, Make it stop. Make it stop. Our pastor's wife of our Arabic congregation grew up in a Coptic church, they're from Egypt. Every time that happens, every time a church is burned over there, every time there's a a bomb, an explosion, it's a reminder to them that to this day, those who say in some countries, I want to follow Jesus, will discover that there are people who will try to stop them at all costs, even if it means murder. And our hearts are broken and we pray for these. The images of children on the screen this week are a reminder to us that we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. And the only hope for that world is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says the hope for the world is that you will not only watch me on the cross, but you will go with me to the cross. You will be willing to give up your life the way that I'm giving up my life. Because that's the only way the world is going to be won. To glorify God, we have to worship Him and walk with Him, and we have to bear witness to the truth that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. So Jesus says, it's time. It's time for judgment to come in this world. And the Prince of this world is going to be cast out, He says. He's going to be cast out. Jesus overcomes on the cross. It's true that He's dying in place of us, substituting for us. I mean, I believe in that theory of the atonement, though I think they're all just theories and these are just metaphors in the Scripture. But one of the most powerful metaphors is when Jesus was on the cross, He was overcoming the powers of this world. All the powers of the world were arrayed against Him and He was victorious as we sing. He trampled over death by death. By death He overcame the powers of death. But it's not just that. It's also He says that, that when He is lifted up He will draw all people. It's a universal magnetism. This is God's plan to save the world. That Jesus will, will die. Alexander McLaren said you demagnetize Christianity. Christianity. You demagnetize Christianity as all history shows if you strike out the death on the cross for a world sin. What's left is not a magnet. Just a bit of scrap iron. If Jesus just came to say, everybody try to be a little bit kinder, let's all try a little bit harder to do a little bit better. If that's why Jesus came, we're in a lot of trouble. But if Jesus Christ came to take the sins of the world upon Himself, and when He he mounted that cross and willingly gave His life, He was literally inviting the whole world to believe in Him. You say, but not everybody in the world believes. But those who do, John says in the first chapter to all who received him even to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god god wants us to be his children but in these verses we discover in this same chapter in verse 37 not everybody is going to believe in him some the pharisees for instance are chagrined that this is going on and they still verse 37 won't believe in him why why won't they believe in Him? Well, he says in verse 43, because they love human, here's the word again, glory, more than glory from God. And so they, they refuse. They refuse to believe in Him. N.T. Wright tells about a pastor in a different tradition who received the confessions of his people. By the way, people confess to me sometimes and I confess to others we're all priests we all confess but in this tradition they came and confessed to their pastor but they were making a joke of it and so they made up things they hadn't really done and they thought it was really funny and hilarious and pastors are smarter than we look and they, he knew what they were doing and the first two he listened to their confessions and they they chuckled and, and laughed as they ran out of the church but the third young man after he listened to him he said now you've made your confession I want you to do something for me to show that you're really turning from your sin. He knew the young man hadn't done all the things he said he had done. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk up to the cross at the front of the church. And I want you to look at that cross and say to God, you did all this for me, but it doesn't mean that much to me. And I want you to do it three times. Young man kind of laughed under his breath, walked up, looked up at their cross in that church, and said, You did all that for me, and it doesn't mean that much to me. First time. Second time, you did all that for me, it doesn't mean that much to me. Third time, he couldn't get the words out. He burst into tears. And the pastor who told that story said, I know that story is true because I was that boy. Were you that boy? Are you that girl who could say to Jesus, a suffering savior on a crimson cross, you did all that for me and I don't care that much about. It. Can you say that today? Try to say it. Try to say it 3 times. Try to look him in the eyes as he is bleeding to death for you and say, it just doesn't mean that much to me. You can't do it. You can't do it. Because when he was on that cross, he was giving life to all who believe in him. And doesn't that make you want to glorify him with your worship? Not just mark time, not just perfunctory, went to church for an hour, but I'm going like Mary with my perfume. I'm going like children with palm branches. I'm going like Greeks who got to see the one the only one who can bring people back to life. Glorify Him like that. It's time. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for what Christ has done for us. And we confess, Lord, that Though we may have believed and been baptized, sometimes we act as though what You have done for us doesn't really mean that much. And we just confess that, God. Change that in us, we pray. And we pray that the tractor beam of the cross would catch everyone in this room. That we would be drawn irresistibly by Your love. You did all that for us. That means everything to us. And we want to follow You and give You our whole lives and get caught worshiping You with abandon, caught up in adoration. Because You are worthy. You are worth it for us to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.